0: Time to check in now with Dr. Chris Kiefer, and we're going to talk about COP27, the second most attended COP of all time, the one that just ended up in Egypt. Dr. Chris Kiefer uh, joins us this morning. He is the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Dr. Kiefer, Chris, good morning and welcome back.
1: Good morning, Sterling. It's wonderful to be back with you.
0: Well, it's good to have you with us. Now, you went to Egypt to COP27. I know you want to talk to us this morning about the clean tech tax credit, but let's get the Dr. Kiefer take on COP27, please.
1: Well, you know, there's been a lot of frustration with these cops over the year. This was the 27th of such gatherings. Every year, you know, ten to 30,000 dignitaries, civil society folks come together, fly in from all over the world um, and have these meetings, and we don't seem to be making much progress at all. The theme this year um, was less about, um, you know, phasing out fossil fuels and more about adaptation and the so-called loss and damage fund. And basically, right. the undeveloped countries of the world are saying, hey, you know, we're facing some major impacts from climate change. We need you to help uh, pay for us to, to clean up. And what that exposes, though, is, is a, a major tension with the whole process. You know, countries that are vulnerable to climate change are underdeveloped countries. They're countries mm-hmm. that don't have good roads, don't have good buildings, don't have good power systems. And, you know, the reality is is that those kind of systems are built using fossil fuels. And so there's this kind of fundamental tension at these conferences where, you know, we're talking about trying to decrease emissions. But, you know, without the recognition that fossil fuels are really the lifeblood of modern civilization. And the focus needs to be on discovering what are the viable technological tools we have to try and reduce our dependence.
0: Interesting stuff. So now uh, after you get back to Canada and uh, the Canadian delegation was a significant one, as I mentioned earlier, Chris, it was the second most attended cop of, of all 27. And that's a, uh, that's a lot of private jets uh, on the tarmac there at the airport in Cairo.
1: No, absolutely. I mean a uh, funny anecdote. My friend was on a flight that was circling the Sharm El Sheikh airport for two hours because air force one was landing. Um, yeah. I mean the, the air traffic was, was mind boggling. Um, They'd redone the big sort of central strip of this Egyptian desert resort town, uh, turned it into a, you know, six lane highway uh, just for this event. So, you know, it it really was uh, popping off in the desert. Let
0: me quote an article uh, that you wrote uh, the other day in the Financial Post, Dr. Kiefer. Quote, can do the made in Canada nuclear reactor technology that powered the Ontario coal phase out North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction is the victim of a bizarre form of reverse protectionism that favors overseas supply chains and technologies over homegrown ones. We're talking now about the clean tech tax credit uh, which excludes can do first of all what is the clean tech tax credit
1: well this is an attempt by the canadian federal government to imitate the u.s inflation reduction act um, which is a really broad sweeping piece of legislation which has as its focus including in uh, encouraging clean technology investments so i think you know Christia freeland uh, and justin trudeau and others felt a need to respond to this and show some vision particularly before cop 27 And so, you know, it's an attempt to, I guess, stimulate um, clean technology deployments. Now, obviously, our choices are limited. We're pretty much out of new hydroelectricity potential. Site C went way over budget. You know, there's a lot of controversy about new hydro dams. Geothermal is promising, but very, you know, confined to some of our mountainous regions. BC may benefit from that. Uh, But Mm -hmm. largely in terms of scalable solutions, we're talking here about wind, solar, and nuclear. The reality of wind and solar is that essentially all of the weather harvesting machines, the wind turbines and solar panels are made in almost all in a single country in China. Um, And so we have some choices to make in terms of how we spend our our clean technology money. We have proven technology, which is our Kandu nuclear reactor fleet, currently delivers 15 percent of Canada's electricity. Um, as you mentioned, powered the largest greenhouse gas reduction in North American history, the coal phase-out. It's a proven technology. It's all in country. The supply chain is 96% in Canada. We spend a dollar on it, we generate a buck 40 in, in economic activity. And so it's it is very strange in this uh, clean technology tax credit legislation that everything is included essentially except for you know Canada's most scalable and effective uh, climate solution going forward, namely our, our nuclear technology. Now, I have to say that—go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, Dr. Kiefer, uh, this government, and you and I have discussed this in the past on this program, this government appears to have been fundamentally opposed to anything to do with nuclear. Uh, however, when they introduced this Clean Technology Investments Tax Credit, small modular nuclear reactor, reactors, rather or SMRs, are covered. So they've they've given in a little bit on some nuclear, and yet the home homegrown can do Canadian technology remains excluded. So how do you square that circle?
1: You know, as you say, it is it is highly significant because the federal government has really shifted from an anti nuclear position to a pro nuclear one. And they put their money where their mouth is. Um, almost a billion dollars announced to support Canada's first and really the Western world's first small modular reactor program. That's significant and that's important. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But as it stands right now, our nuclear industry, again, which supplies 15% of Canada's electricity, essentially carbon-free, it doesn't have any SMRs in it. You know, we're actively um, adding another 30, 40 years to our can-do reactors. That's essential just to maintain the climate success that we have so far with that low-carbon fleet. The SMR that we're building, um, it's overseas technology. We're going to certainly bring some of that onshore. Um, but again, that's just it doesn't match what we get out of uh, out of our Candu fleet. And then the other small detail here is that all of the utilities looking at deploying SMRs are public utilities that don't actually benefit from getting a tax credit. So in a sense, you know, I don't think that you know Minister Gilboa, or our anti-nuclear environment minister is quite this crafty. But in a sense, this legislation actually excludes all nuclear, you know, Candu or SMR because it's not actually going to even benefit the utilities that are looking at deploying SMR.
0: So these SMRs, these small modular nuclear reactors, is this a Canadian thing, Chris? Is this a, a technology that we can export to the world as we've done in the past with CanDo? Or are we importing SMRs?
1: So, I mean, first off, SMRs is a big grab bag of a term. It includes everything from a microreactor, something that could power a very small community of a thousand people, or maybe a mine, um, up to you know what's being built in Ontario at Darlington, a 300 megawatt reactor, which is about one third the size of our big Candu reactor fleet. That's the only sort of serious project going forward right now. This 300 megawatt reactor, and it is a Japanese and U.S. design. It's not Canadian. Um okay. we do hope we'll be able to get expertise as a kind of first mover um and get some of the you know, there's a lot of interest around the world and in, in particular this reactor. No doubt Canada will see some of that. But can do we made it. It's kind of like the Avro Arrow, you know, the, the world's best fighter jet in the sixties. You know, we've created an amazing reactor. It's its operations have gotten better and better and better. Um and it's all Canadian. We own the entire IP and, you know, have the workforce supply chain fuel everything teed up for it. So Um, You know, we definitely need to to forge forward on both fronts, on the SMR front, but, you know, Can-Do is a really huge advantage to this country.
0: How many Can-Do reactors are currently operating in Canada, Dr.
1: Kiefer? There are 19 operating. We built 23 in 22 years. So when people say nuclear is too slow... They need, to, they need to reflect on that a little bit. If we were to, to repeat our historic deployment of those 23 reactors, we'd have enough electricity to completely phase out coal and gas across the whole country. So we can okay. do it. I don't mean to be too cheesy here. We can do it, and yeah. we have done it. 20, 23 reactors built in 22 years.
0: Uh, by the way, uh, you did mention very briefly Site C in your your uh, relating to the hydroelectricity component of our energy sector. Site C, uh, as you say, has gone a little over budget. I think Site C is going to turn out to be just a, a just a just a real disaster where the government is sitting so firmly and so tightly on all of this project and all of the numbers and all of the reports that you just know you just get the sense that something really wrong is underway so as far as can do do they have a a, a lobby is there any way that they can galvanize public support for for nuclear and direct it at the federal government in terms of reconsidering perhaps the tax credit to include can-do going
1: forward? I have to say, you know, I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I've become passionate about climate change, and that's led me to a passion for nuclear energy. Um, But there's not many people that are batting for um, this success story, the can-do success story. And that's why I've got, you know, my my foot in the ring here. Um, It's not anything I would have ever expected to do based upon my lifelong history of activism. You know, mm-hmm. getting back to to sight environmentalists. You know, back in the fifties and sixties, you know, Ansel Adams, the famous photographer, the former head of uh, the Sierra Club, William Seary, these were diehard pro nuclear advocates because they said we don't need to dam our beautiful river valleys. You know, these were hikers, you know, conservationists. They said we can use nuclear energy because on a, such a tiny footprint of land, we can generate as much electricity as a massive hydro dam. And so mm. that's really something. I know nuclear energy is actually illegal in British Columbia. But I mean, if you want to preserve beautiful British Columbia and have your beautiful river valleys and you know not make those devastating choices between clean energy um, and a, and a beautiful environment and beautiful river valleys, nuclear energy is really a, a vital tool in the toolkit that that shouldn't be left out. And you know for those Go ahead. Mm-hmm, for, for those that are for those that see wind and solar as the way out you, ha- you have to take a look at Germany. They've spent half a trillion dollars on wind and solar. I just looked right. at their grid today. 60% of their electricity is coming from coal and gas. It's a disaster. It is, it is a massive misallocation. We've proven that nuclear can kick coal off the grid. We did that in Ontario. If Germany had made a similar investment in nuclear, they would not be burning any coal or gas right now. So, Interesting you know, stuff.
0: And by the way, yeah. just just as an aside, uh, Dr. Kiefer, uh, the Germans have decided to cut a fuel deal with Qatar uh, because when they came to Canada and asked for some assistance from their allies, we had nothing to offer. Uh, and, and, and they turned around and well, they still need gas. So they just signed a deal with Qatar.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's pretty unbelievable. I mean, you know, I'm a climate hawk, but I also don't want to see people freezing to death in the dark. And again, getting back to COP, this is the fundamental challenge. We are a fossil-fueled civilization. The four sort of material inputs that hold up our entire civilizational enterprise are steel, plastic, cement, and fertilizer. And, you know, if, if, if you want to follow the dictates of Extinction Rebellion and leave it all on the ground, 50% of the world's population will die within a decade because 50% of us, 50% of the protein in our body comes from something called the Haber-Bosch process, turning natural gas into fertilizer. We are utterly dependent on fertilizer for our survival. And so these simplistic notions of, you know, we just need to have stronger pledges at COP27 don't apply. Mm. We need to find, you know, lower carbon alternatives. We need to replace um, fossil fuels in the places that we can easily and quickly. Um, but we need to be realistic about the very real challenges that are ahead of us. Um, and, and again, this sort of, there's a few pilot programs that are here. We can make steel you know, without using coal, or we can make fertilizer. We can make green ammonia. We can have pilot projects, but to do that at the scale, to sustain a population of 8 billion is going to require just an ungodly amount of reliable clean energy. And nuclear energy is absolutely a part of that. Probably should be the dominant part of it. But let's not make any mistake. I mean, we are facing... You know, just such a such a challenging situation. We all need to pull together on this. And I really encourage, you know, anti-nuclear activists in particular to really take a look at what they're focusing their efforts on, because it's not helping the climate and it's not helping humanity meet the challenges facing us over the next decades and centuries with climate change.
0: Dr. Chris Kiefer is president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, a website well worth a Google search. Chris, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for being with us this morning again. Thank you for having me back, Sterling.